0: Alright, and good morning and welcome to the Church of 1122. My name is Pastor Ryan Britt and I have the incredible honor to be able to open God's Word and teach this morning. And So thanks so much for being here. We are in a series where we've been walking through the book of 1 John for quite a few weeks and we're going to continue that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out. If you don't, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, and if you don't even want to do that, then we wrote it down in the notes for you. We're pretty serious about you having access to the Scriptures on your way in, um, you passed a big honking trailer in the in the parking lot that we are partnering with, uh, Nor- Feed Northeast Florida, in a food drive this weekend. And we, are, we have the opportunity this weekend to um, underwrite a summer feeding program that they do across our community that feeds upwards of 50,000 kids in our community who are under-resourced through the summer. And so we get a chance to be a part of that. And so if you brought food and participated in that we thank you, and if you haven't, it's cool because there's a Publix right across the street, and you can go right after service and uh, pick something up and bring it back. The truck will be here all day. I know if you go to that Publix and it's not your Publix, it's kind of like cheating on your Publix, but I think the Lord will forgive you. Uh, amen. All right, all right, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Let's dive in. We were in a series called Give Love a Try, like I said, and the, the idea behind. What we've been talking about for the last few weeks is that we believe that God loved us and because he loved us through Jesus and loves us today by giving us a relationship with him, this love does something. This love stirs something. This love gives us the opportunity to be loving back and to love one another. And Pastor Joby has been teaching for weeks and weeks and weeks about things that would that would take our hearts and take our love and our affections and would betray us and would lead us away from what God has for us. And we're going to pick up right where Pastor Joby left off today in 1 John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, let's dive in. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says this, children, it is the last hour and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now John, as he writes, he's one of Jesus' closest friends and allies. He knew Jesus as well or better than anyone on this earth. And he spent a ton of time with Jesus. And he writes this letter as a pastor of a church. And as a pastor of a church, he's writing this to people like me and you who attend a church, people who attend his church, and people who will one day attend the church. And he is warning us against deceivers, against people who would lead us astray from what God wants us to know to be true. The reality that God is so good and just that he came to earth in the flesh and lived a life that you and I couldn't live and died a death that that was marked for us and then rose again three days later getting Having victory over all of death's demands, the fact that that is true and that that is where the source of life and hope and joy comes from, that is what John is writing, saying people are trying to steal that truth from us. And if we step back for one second from our daily agendas and and we just tune into our culture through the lens of truth, you don't have to look very far to realize that deception is alive and well. And that the same deceivers, the same spirit of deception that was operating in John's time is also still very alive and well today. John writes with some pretty serious language. He uses words, in verse 18, he uses words like the last hour or the Antichrist. In verse 22, he says that the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. Now, you don't write about the Antichrist and the last hour unless you mean business. Right? I don't know about you, but those are not terms that I use often. I mean, maybe we should. You know, maybe we should, especially you single folks. Listen, here's a tip for you if you're single. Try this. After service, go outside and there's a few boxes with some food in it. Take some food out of one and the other one like you brought it so somebody might see you. And as you're moving the food, you're going to run into somebody who may be the one. And when you bump into them, you should say, hey, I think we should get some lunch because it's the last hour. And then, and then you say something like, hey, you know what, maybe you should just, maybe, you know what, let's get some coffee before the Antichrist comes. Try it and just see if it works, right? Try the Antichrist, maybe tomorrow at work when your boss is breathing down your neck and be like, hey, you better be nice to me, the Antichrist is coming, you know, whatever. We just don't talk like that, we don't use those phrases. You don't throw that language around unless you mean business, or, unless you're a TV evangelist and you want to buy a Gulfstream. If that's you, then you can use last hour in Antichrist language and it'll probably work. But John seems to be very serious. And he goes on to talk about these deceivers throughout the rest of the book. The, the, and then later he writes the book of Revelation, which deals at length with Antichrist and the last hour and the apocalypse and, and things that are pretty serious. And so if John's talking serious, you and I, should probably tune in. I don't want to just pass over the Antichrist without giving it some discussion. It's an incredibly weighty conversation when we start talking about the end of times. John's posture toward the Antichrist seems to be that one day there will be a singular Antichrist. One day the, 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 the deception and the spirit of deception will fully manifest itself in one person. But until that day, John says that there are many lesser antichrists, that there are many forms of the antichrist alive and well today. And this we know as the spirit of deception. It is easy to think about it like this. If you want to think about the antichrist rightly, then you just have to think about anything that is anti-Christ qualifies. Right? Now... I'm not trying to oversimplify, but think about it. Anything that is anti-Jesus, anti-Jesus' teachings, anti-the truth that Jesus lived a perfect life, was God's son, died a death on a cross and rose three days later, and all the instructions that follow, anything that is anti-Jesus is operating under the spirit of deception and is anti-Christ. And the goal of the anti-Christ is to distract our spirits from life. It is to distract our spirits from the faith that can be found in Jesus. Being a spiritual being is not a decision that you and I make. It is not something we wake up and decide, you know what, I'm just going to be spiritual today. Being spiritual is just what we are. It is how God made us. One day our bodies will pass and our spirits will live on. Being spiritual is who you are. And so the question we are going to answer today in a few different parts is if we are spiritual beings, how do we exist in a healthy way? How do we stay away from the deception and the lies and the anti-Jesus movements in our world and, and the things that are happening in our minds that would lead us astray? And how do we belong in a healthy way to what God would have us belong to? If you have your notes, I want you to write this down. Healthy spirituality, as we can experience in this life, is one movement that happens in two parts. It's one movement that happens in two parts. It is a movement away from isolation and a movement toward intimacy. It is one movement. It is the same continuum that we live on. One direction is isolation and one direction is intimacy. Isolation is being trapped in the things of this world, into the temptations and sin that would so easily entangle us. And intimacy with whom? Intimacy with God the Father. Healthy spirituality is one movement that has two parts. It either moves toward, unhealthy moves toward isolation, and healthy moves toward spiritual, uh, intimacy. Now, isolation is the enemy's goal. The enemy's goal is to get me isolated because he knows that in isolation, I will make some pretty dumb decisions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am left alone to me, you know what I get? A lot of me. And sometimes me thinks me has good ideas, right? And when I'm all by myself and I don't, and me doesn't choose to talk with anybody else about these decisions or seek wise counsel or. Uh, talk about the things I'm struggling with or or wrestle through all the stuff going on in my mind all the time. When me is left to me, me gets a lot of me. And me is pretty stupid, but me thinks me is pretty smart. So me is a problem. Me is my biggest problem without a doubt. I get a whole lot of me, and there is no way that me can make me satisfied, no way, no how. And the enemy knows it, and he wants me to get alone in my little circle of me because he knows that for a second I like it. For like a second, I like being isolated and I like being the king of my universe for like a minute. And then it cost me something. And all of a sudden, I'm looking around going, hold on, I don't like it so much. Uh, this is not good, right? Because me is stupid. Now, you're not stupid, but me is. But, so think about it like this. The enemy's goal is to isolate us. And how he does this, one of the ways he does this is through a thing that you and I have called a cognitive process. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know if you've studied a lot of cognitive process, but the way that it works, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify this, uh, because me is stupid, I have to get it down on my level. I'm going to grossly oversimplify, but your cognitive process is the way that your brain processes information and then filters it to the rest of you. And it happens in a second. And we live in a constant process of feel, believe, behave. That is how your cognitive process works, and the enemy knows it. You are wired to feel, believe, behave, or think, care, and act. Think about it. Your entire worldview is shaped around a filter of feel, believe, behave. And this process exists in our culture to primarily help us remove negative emotion. So everything that comes at us all day is passing through a filter of feel, believe, behave, and the goal of this process is to help us remove negative emotion. And after we feel, and then we believe, and we behave, if it works, if it removes negative emotion, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. That's how behaviors are formed. That's how addictions come, right? We will reassess the feel, believe, behave until it no longer works, and then we will start to attach our feel, our believe, and our behave to something else in the interest of removing negative emotion. In order to remove this negative emotion, our cognitive process takes us on a journey. It takes us on a a quick process that that we see something and we think this thing will help us feel better. Whether it's a thing or a person or a a situation, we think about it for a second. We go, that'll make me feel better. And then not too long after, we begin to believe that that thing will help us feel better. And we define feel better all kinds of ways. Sometimes we We define that through joy and happiness. Sometimes we define it through numbness and indifference. But whatever, as long as we don't feel worse, we will pursue it with our feelings, our believings, and our behaviors. And what's crazy is the enemy knows this. He knows how we're wired. He knows how our jacked-up minds work. And he knows that he has a sympathetic ear. Just like Pastor Ben said earlier, I love the classic hymn we just sang and the line that says, I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I am prone to leave the God I love. The enemy knows that we are prone to wander. And he is constantly throwing darts at us, trying to get us to attach our thinking, our feeling, our caring, and our acting to something that will lead us into isolation. This wandering leads us to aloneness, and when we are isolated, it is open season for temptation to set in and the enemy to have his claws dug in deep. John's no idiot. He knows what the enemy is up to, and that is why he writes with such serious language. Because he knows that there's an enemy out there trying to destroy us. John writes with a real sense of urgency. And I think that you and I could do ourselves some favors if we lived with some urgency. Now, I'm not saying that we're in a state of emergency. There is a difference between emergency and urgency. If you turn on Fox News or CNN or whatever, they want you to believe that it's all over, right? People have been saying it's all over for thousands and thousands of years. And we don't know when and we don't know how. But I really don't believe that we're in a state of emergency. I know our world's jacked up and we can live with a sense of urgency but this this idea of emergency just stirs fear and control, right? And, and and we don't have to live under fear because God is sovereign, because Jesus has the victory, because the war is won, praise the Lord. We don't have to live in a state of emergency, but we get to live with a sense of urgency. I'm not sure how you grew up in church, but in the tradition that I came from, they did this thing in our churches where they it was where they really, really like to talk about the end times. Back when I was a a kid and a teenager, uh, the Left Behind series was really big, and the end times was all the rage. It's all that anybody ever talked about. And they would preach these sermons, and they would tell us about all the things that are going to happen one day, and they would use all this language, and, and then at the end of the service, they would say, all right, if you think any of that's true, I'm kind of overstating this in bitterness, so forgive me, but... If you think any of that's true, then here's what you need to do. You need to pray this prayer. And then they would lead us through a thing called the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer. And they would put it on the screen, and I would read it, and and then they would say, if you've prayed that prayer today, we want you to come down the aisle and shake the preacher's hand and let him know about the decision that you've made. Okay. My dad happened to be the preacher. Um, one of them. The good one. and um, And then... You would then go, they would say, all right, good job. Now go try, and try to live really, 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 really well and do your best not to mess up too bad. In Jesus' name, go. Based on that formula, I have been saved 917 times. Not even kidding. I've prayed the prayer at least 4,000 times. At least 4,000. When I was a kid, I used to lay in bed and I would, every night before I would go to sleep, I would, be, I would try to confess all my sins from the day. Just in case I didn't wake up, I was clean, right? And I would lay there at night and I would say, okay, God, this morning, I would start in the morning with my sins That it started early. I'd be like, God, when Dad came in the room this morning and flipped the lights on, he started singing. I just wanted to punch him in the face. And then when I stammered out of bed and I was stumbling around, I stubbed my toe and I said a bad word. I'm sorry, God. I said a cuss word. And then I would go... I would go on with the list and list and list. I wouldn't make it very far before I fell asleep, right? And then the next night, I would have to confess the sin of falling asleep while I was confessing my sins. And it was this vicious cycle of insanity that I lived in for years and years and years. I've been baptized at least twice. I say at least twice because there's a couple of years there. I really just don't remember. Uh, Hey, don't judge me. I haven't always been. It took 917 times for it to take. Give a brother a break, you know? I haven't always been a Christian. There's a couple years there, a little slippery in my mind. I may have gotten baptized then. I've walked down the aisle more times than anybody. I know I hold the record without a doubt. This religious fear, and maybe they weren't teaching religious fear. I don't want to judge them too harshly. Maybe I was only listening through religious ears. And do you know that religion and religious ears only hear fear and control? They only hear fear and control relationship with Jesus is something completely different. I grew up in a world where religious fear was dished out like it was ice cream. But that's not what urgency is about. Urgency is different. It tells us that absolutely something is wrong. Things are broken. But we don't live from a place of fear. We live from a place of hope. We are hopeful that today might be the day that God answers a prayer. Today might be the day that God does a miracle and we get to see it. Today may be the day, just maybe, that God shows up and does something that we've never thought possible. That's where urgency comes from. And we are also hopeful because we know that one day Jesus is coming back. It is biblically accurate to believe that one day Jesus will split the sky open, the trumpet will sound, and he will come back For his children. And on that day. Everything that we currently experience and see. Through a glass dimly. We will fully and finally realize. In the presence of Jesus. Because of that. We're hopeful. At some point in my religious. Cycle of insanity. I had to stop asking little mini me Jesus. To get into my heart. And I had to start believing the gospel. Which says Jesus gave me a new heart. Those are different things. Often when we talk of things we don't really understand, like the end times or the apocalypse, it's easy that that fear rises up. But John writes this warning, not to produce fear, but to produce faith that is stirred to action. And he continues, continue with me, but you, but you, that's the church, anyone who has surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, you all have knowledge Here's a nugget for you. Pause. I know y'all want to just keep going. Pause. When you place your faith in Christ, and you surrender under Him as your Lord, here's what happens. God, the infinite God of the universe, breathes God into us. He takes something that is completely dead, and He makes it completely alive forever in a moment. This is called the anointing of God when God breathes God's spirit into the indwelling of the temple, which is what the Bible calls us. He says we are the temple and God breathes himself into us. And with this breathing, with this imparting of the spirit of God, we get all kinds of stuff like spiritual gifts. We have gifts that we did not have when we were dead that we can now fully experience as people who are alive. And these gifts were given to us for God's glory for our neighbor's good. God doesn't just give us stuff for kicks and giggles. He gives us stuff for a reason. He gives us gifts so that we can use them to glorify him by serving one another. It's an amazing thing, this imparting of the Holy Spirit. That's what John's talking about when he says that you have been anointed and you all have knowledge. You have God inside you because he breathed it in there. We are to be active in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. We use these gifts to fulfill the things that God instructed us through Jesus to do. Now, as a pastor, I get the opportunity to meet with a lot of people. And a lot of people come and sit and talk with me, and, and it's a real familiar conversation. And they say something like, Pastor Britt, I just don't know what God wants me to do with my life. Okay. I got this one. I got it. Sit right there. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And it says this. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have instructed you. And I will be with you until the end of the age. Okay, what am I supposed to do with my life? All right. In Matthew chapter 28, it says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have instructed. I I get it, but what am I supposed to do? Okay, go make disciples. I think it's amazing the number of people I meet with that say, I just don't know what, I want, what I'm supposed to do with my life. And they're waiting on some mystical voice to show up. Listen, friends, you don't need a voice when God gave you a verse. This is what we are here to do. We exist to make disciples. That is why we are here. John continues. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Here's the deal, this is a really simple way to restate what John just said. If you are about Jesus, then you are about Jesus' business. If you're about Jesus, then you're about the things that Jesus is about. Abiding in the Son and in the Father is a primary theme that John talks about all over the Scriptures. He talks about it in the book of John and all all three of his letters and in Revelation. And when I hear this word abiding, at first, I get a little weird because it seems like this thing that I'm just not capable of, And I don't know what you think about when you hear the word abiding, but my first instinct is to go to behaviors. And so I start to think, you know, if I want to abide in the Son and the Father, then I need to wake up early in the morning. Because Jesus rose early in the morning, and because he rose early in the morning, so shall I. And once I I raise in the morning early, I will then go and take communion. I have to tiptoe past my kids' rooms so that I don't wake them up, because that would be a sin. But once I get past, I take communion. After communion, I'm going to recite all the Bible verses that I know. And after I've recited all the Bible verses, I'm going to sing every worship song I know into a pillow so I don't wake my kids. But I'm going to sing as loud as I can all the songs that I know. And after all of that, I'm going to go and wake my family. And then we're going to sit in a circle and we're going to hold hands and we're going to sing Kumbaya. And when we do, the Spirit of God is going to whisper into my ear. And as he whispers, I'm going to interpret their dreams from the night before. And that, my friends, will be abiding. That's not what you think about when you think about abiding. That's where my brain goes. I go straight to behaviors. But that's not what John's talking about. He's not talking about behaviors. Belonging is something else. Belonging is about, uh, abiding is about belonging. You want to write that down. Abiding is about Belonging, And as followers of Jesus, we experience this belonging through four relationships. God created us to enjoy Him through four different relationships. And for the rest of our time, I'm going to talk about what these four relationships are and how we can actively pursue intimacy with God through them. We'll talk about intimacy through God, uh, with God through these relationships, and we'll also talk about what happens when we fall into isolation. God created us to enjoy him through four relationships. And the first of these relationships, and you can follow along in your notes, there's a cute little stick man for you to draw this with. The first relationship that God created you to enjoy him through is a relationship with God himself. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's true. When you think about God, have your thoughts been captivated by the gospel? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of salvation for all who hear and believe. The receiving and the believing of the gospel is the most important and most definitive thing about you. This primary relationship with God can only be had through faith in Jesus. It is on this relationship that all other relationships hang. Here at 1122, we say this statement all the time, God is first. God is first. And when God gives us faith to believe in him and we recognize him as first or preeminent over all things, he begins to draw us into who he is closer and closer and closer. And when he does this, we can begin to experience intimacy as it was designed by God. Isolation happens when we slip into the lies of this world, when we begin to, ha- to fix our thoughts on things other than God and His goodness, we begin to slip away from intimacy and into isolation. Abiding in Christ through this relationship comes through acts of faith. And that is where intimacy is found. Abiding in your relationship with God comes through acts of faith. It is faith-fueled activity. I'm not talking about behavior modification. I'm talking about faith fueled activity, which is something different. Faith-fueled activity equals abiding in Christ. And we realize this faith-fueled activity through things like our spiritual disciplines. Our spiritual disciplines are things like prayer. Do you know that prayer without faith is powerless? Prayer without faith is completely powerless. Prayer without faith is just words that won't get above the ceiling. The good news is that Jesus tells us that we don't have to have dump trucks full of faith, but that the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Even the smallest amount of faith that taken to God through prayer, God will respond to the faith of his people. Do you know that God responds to faith? We often say, we'll just pray and see what God does. In faith, believing is what stirs God to action. Faith stirs God to action, not words. Those are different different things. Acts of faith are absolutely what abiding looks like. Without faith, we are powerless. And that is exactly what the enemy wants. The second relationship that God created us for, to enjoy him through, is a relationship with ourself. The first is God. The second is ourself. Do you know that you spend a lot of time with you? Right, yeah, you can't get away from you. I don't know about you, but I have to ask, do you ever get on your nerves? Right? I mean, do you ever just, like, all right, look, I just need a break from me for like a second. I know I do. I drive myself crazy. Imagine being my wife. She's a saint. I drive me nuts. I mean, just the other night, I was chasing a bowl of ice cream down with a cupcake, and I thought, I looked at that cupcake, and I thought, you know what? If I could do it all over again, I'd be somebody different. I'd be somebody who wasn't fast-tracked toward heart disease and diabetes. And then I looked at the cupcake and thought, eh, what do you do? And I ate it. But that drive me crazy, right? I, I make myself nuts sometimes, but we, our relationship with ourselves, is a relationship that we have to deal with. We are not going anywhere. And in this relationship, if it gets broken, then one of two things happen. If you get isolated, you either have really low self-esteem or really high self-esteem, which shows itself in a messianic complex. You either think you're incapable of doing anything or that you are capable of doing everything in and of yourself. The most powerful tool you have in your life to combat isolation is the gospel. It is the gospel. When my insecurities rise, which they do, Right? It'll happen today. I'll get done preaching and I'll walk off and I'll be like, I'm just the worst. I I can't say anything that makes sense. People hate me. My insecurities will rise. And when my insecurities rise, I have to preach the gospel to myself. I I have to think about what does the gospel say? The gospel says, Ryan, you're right. You can't do anything right. You're not capable of good, but there's good news. Jesus did all the work. And God in his infinite grace placed you in Christ... So stop having self-pity and believe in Jesus, because that's where your hope is anyway. And then when my pride rises, which it doesn't rise very often because I'm married, but when it does rise, when it does rise, the gospel says, Ryan, you're not awesome. You're actually weak and desperate. But the good news is, even though God resists the proud, he loves Jesus. And in his infinite grace, he placed you in Christ. So the pressure to perform is off. Stop trying to climb the next hill, Ryan. Stop trying to to move the ball down the field to prove something to God because the pressure to perform is off. Jesus did all the performing that would ever need to be done on the cross and through the resurrection. So relax. God created me to enjoy him through a relationship with myself and the fruit of abiding in a relationship with Jesus, in my relationship with myself, is humility. It is humility. Tim Keller preached an incredible sermon called Blessed Self-Forgetfulness. And in this sermon, he says that humility is not thinking less of oneself, it is thinking of oneself less. Humility is not thinking less of you, it is thinking of you less. Humility is found when we fix our mind's eye on something other than us. When we fix our our heart's attention and our mind's affections on something other than us. Did you know that you are not the point of your existence? You're not the center of the universe. And as long as we live like we are the point and we are the center of the universe, we can never experience Life as God designed for us to live. Humility is the fruit of abiding in your relationship with Christ. One of the primary w- ways we see this relationship lived out in a healthy way here at 1122 is through baptism. I look around the room and I see dozens of people who've been baptized here at 1122, and every one of them, when they climb into the tub, there's a little shake. And it's not because the water's cold, because we got heaters in that mess, but they got a little shake because they're nervous. They're nervous because they are putting themselves on display for the world to see. And they are saying out loud, God has saved me and I want everybody to know it. It is an incredibly humbling step to take. And I believe that there's a lot of people here today that have not been obedient and faithfully followed Christ in baptism. We would encourage you to do so. You can act in humility by offering yourself up to be baptized. We're going to do a baptism here in about a month at the beach in Beach baptism at 1122 is the rock star of all events. It's the best thing we do all year. I love it. Our whole church packs on the beach and we just celebrate what God's doing through baptism. And if you need to take the step of faith through baptism, I would encourage you to do it today. Step toward intimacy. Don't get pulled toward isolation. The third relationship that God created us for is a relationship with others or community. This relationship is it a direct result of, the, of God himself. God in and of himself is a community. He is a perfectly designed triune relationship. He, God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit live in a constant love fest. They are just loving on each other all the time, and it always works, and they practice something called mutual voluntary submission. Habitually and always, they live in a relationship of mutual voluntary submission. And as a community being that is mutually and voluntarily submitting itself to itself, God created us to live in community with others. We were made for relationships. You were made to relate and be related to. When we're isolated from Christian community, we live as though people are a problem to be solved or they are pawns in our games of self-validation. When this relationship gets broken, we treat people as though they're a problem to be solved or there a pawn to move around in our game of self-validation. We live out of brokenness when we exploit one another. A lot of times we hide it behind the banner of networking, or getting ahead, or taking advantage of a situation, but when a situation crosses the line from being an abstract situation to being a human, it is no longer getting ahead, it is exploitation. When we exploit each other, in the, in the hope of removing negative emotion in ourselves, then we are living out of, in isolation out of relational brokenness. How many relationships do you have that at the core of them are built on the fact that they help you remove negative emotion? If the point of the relationship is the removal of negative emotion, then it is doomed to fail. And the reason it's doomed to fail is because we hurt each other a lot more than we help each other. But what if, what if the point of our relationships was not to help each other feel better, but it was to help each other know God better? What if we related to one another in the interest of promoting healthy spirituality and healthy intimacy with God, not feeling better? What would happen? Then we would operate from a place of forgiveness when we hurt each other. And we would realize that as we stumble and fall and we let each other down, that it is in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. Intimacy draws us in to forgiveness and love and trust in God's perfection. Isolation draws us in to self-validation. You know you're trapped in relational isolation when you relate to other people in the interest of selfish gain. If you chase your wife for the reward, I mean, listen, fellas, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'll go home and I'll be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean, I'm going I'm to vacuum, I'm going to say nice things, I'm going to pretend like I care, and I'm going to do all these things because I want something. Have you ever pursued your wife for the reward? I don't know about you, sometimes I'll wipe the counters in vacuum because I'm really hoping my wife will bake some cookies later, if you know what I'm saying. But when we do this, fellas, when we we pursue, not out of love, out of reward, then we are operating from a place of relational brokenness in selfish gain. And we can never enjoy intimacy. When God saved you, when God saved you and me, he did this amazing thing where he had immediately adopted us into his family. And we realize this intimacy with God on this community level, on this relational level with others, as we relate and be related to in a body of Christ, which is most effectively realized in the context of a local church. That's why local, church, we're in, local churches are in God's design. They are here for us to be here together on mission with one another. This family of God, this This idea of the local church is really just God's active rescue team that God uses to make himself known in cities all across the world. And this, here in Jacksonville, 1122, this is God's branch of his rescue team. And God has you here. And so as you are here, you can most effectively experience intimacy with God through covenant membership with the church of 1122. Now this is not a bait and switch. I believe this. At the core of my being. That if you want to belong to this community of faith. And you want to be a part of what God's doing. The most effective way to do that. Is through covenant membership. That's why membership is so important. Just like baptism is an outward confession. Of an inward work of grace. So is membership. Membership is saying that I belong. That God has called me. God has prepared me. And God has placed me in this mission. And I am all in. That's what covenant membership here is at 11.22. And at 11.22, we, we call it covenant membership because we believe that God made a covenant promise with us. He made a covenant promise with us that, that he would save us. And he did that. He, he made good on his promise through Jesus. And because he covenanted with us, we covenant with each other that we are going to be about the business of Jesus. And I... I can't sing this praises enough, but I I will stop and say this. I have never, I've been in church, as long as I can remember, I've been in more churches on more continents than I can even begin to name. And I have never been a part of a family, I've never been a part of a church that is so laser focused on heralding the gospel as 1122. We, to the best of our ability, are about Jesus' business. We're about what Jesus is about. And we want you, we believe that it is best for you to be about the same things. And you may ask yourself, well, I just don't know if God wants me to join this church. I just don't. Simplify. We're a church and we're here. You happen to be here too. God brought you here, put you in a seat at this church for a reason. Why? Why? If it's not to to most fully enjoy Him through intimacy with people and with Him, then why would God bring you here? Some of the best people I know serve here. We have people, I'm just going to say some names to honor them. We have people like Marty and Deb Phillips. Marty and Deb Phillips, they're my closest allies and friends in ministry, and we are blessed to have them. Marty was as successful as you can be. And he laid it all down to pursue ministry in partnership with the Church of 1122 as a volunteer. And now he travels the world training churches and church leaders and leading people to Christ. He trains our staff teams. He, he trains you. Some of you guys have been through workshops with him. We are blessed to have them. They walked away from it all to pursue what Jesus had for them through this movement. We have people like Chuck and Vicky Wyckoff who are incredible, incredible family members here at 1122. That big trailer in the parking lot is there because Chuck and Vicki Wyckoff help us bridge relationships all over this city, so that Jesus can be made famous. We have people like Johnny and Cheryl Wallace, who Johnny's 60 years old and can out-serve any one of y'all at any time. We have Johnny and Cheryl Wallace who are quiet and humble, and they are people who trust Jesus, and they serve on our leadership teams. They lead a disciple group. They lead prayer times. They go on mission trips. They are all in. And if it's true that everything rises and falls on leadership, I have never been around a group of men who are more in love with Jesus and more passionate about what Jesus is doing than the people here, the elders here at 1122. They love Jesus and they are leading us like they love him. And not to get sideways or to overglorify or anything like that, but I do have to say that if it starts at the top, you have no idea how incredibly blessed we are to have Pastor Joby Martin as our leader. We are blessed people here at 1122. That guy is the real deal. I love Jesus more because I know him. I love my wife more because I'm around him. I'm a better dad. I'm a better friend because I get to serve with people like Joby. These are people who belong here, who habitually have committed themselves to being an active part of this family of faith. As I was preparing this message, I began to pray, and I began to feel like God was stirring in me that he wants 500 people, 500 adults to move this weekend into covenant membership with the Church of 1122. A lot of us have been attending here for a while. Listen, if you're here and you're just checking us out, just check out on this part. No problem. We're glad you're here. We're moving for all people. If you've been here less than like four weeks, great. Everybody else, tune in. There are a lot of people who have been here for a long time that are sitting in the stands as fans of the movement. It's time to move from being a fan of the movement to being a family member on mission with this people. God wants you to move from cheering to committing. No doubt in my mind. I'm believing that 500 adults will take that step this weekend. Are you one of them? I hope so. I hope so. Imagine what God could do if you committed yourselves on the deepest levels to His mission and His purpose in this city. Just imagine. If isolation is realized through self-preservation and self-promotion and selfish gain, then intimacy is realized through selfless acts of service. Becoming a member of the Church of 1122 is saying, I lay down my selfish ambitions to be a part of something bigger than myself. The fourth and final relationship is your relationship to the rest of creation. You were created by God to steward all things that God chooses to trust you with. This is where our sense of purpose comes from. We were created to work. We were created to be active in creation. God gave us dominion over all things created so that we could enjoy his provisions In our life. And when this relationship gets broken. One of two things happens. One. Materialism. We talk about this all the time. We call it the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It's running around in a circle. Doing the same thing. For the same reasons. Thinking stuff will satisfy you. When you know that it won't. Because nobody actually believes that stuff equals happiness. But yet we chase it like it does. That's materialism. That's what happens. And two. Is poverty thinking. On the other side of the same coin. We begin to think. That God didn't give us resources. We begin to think that God didn't create us to work. That God didn't give us the chance to steward. And we begin to believe that it's somebody else's responsibility to provide for us. Versus our opportunity to live as God created us to live. On either side of the coin we find relational isolation in our relationship to the rest of creation. If isolation shows itself through materialism and poverty thinking, then abiding in Christ is realized through, in this relationship as we obediently steward what God has given us. Everything that you've been trusted with by God falls into one of three buckets. Time, talent, and treasure. Everything that you have falls into one of these three buckets. Time, talent, and treasure. And we are trusted by God. We are given the opportunity to obediently steward these three things. And if we want to enjoy God through the relationship as he created us to experience him, then we will be faithful in our stewardship of these three things. Time and talent. We have all kinds of opportunities here at 1122 for you to steward your talent and your time. Maybe it's through leading a disciple group. We want to launch 100 new disciple groups this year. If we start 100 new disciple groups, that means 1,000 new people will be able to experience God on a level that they have not yet experienced Him. 100 groups equals 1,000 people growing in intimacy with Jesus. Maybe it's time for some of you to to give up some time and to use your talent, your God-given talent, to help others grow in their intimacy with Him through disciple groups. Maybe it's on one of our serve staff teams. We have incredible teams, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who serve here every weekend. Maybe it's a new gen right through that walls. If you want to make an investment in the kingdom, I guarantee you if you go over there and pour yourself out, you will be, you will be sowing seeds that will have gospel results to the third and the fourth generation. Maybe it's one of our serve staff teams. Whatever it is, God has chosen to trust you. And to give you the gifts of resources for you to steward. Here at 1122, we're we're blessed. We're a blessed people. God has trusted us. and God has given himself so graciously to us. John finishes his encouragement with this, and so will I. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything. And it is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. My final thought is this, and it's in your notes. Abiding in Christ can only be fully experienced by wholly and completely surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Just as he wholly and completely surrendered himself for us. Don't be deceived today. Don't slip into isolation. Don't believe that you don't have anything to offer in God's kingdom because you do. Don't believe that you don't have enough time or you don't have enough talent because John told you, you have the anointing. You have all you could ever need. Don't believe the lie that your money's yours. Don't believe the lie that God gave you money for you to be all about you. He didn't. He gave you money to be generous with so that others may come to know him. Don't believe the lies today. Don't let the enemy take you toward isolation. But trust in God and move toward intimacy. In your seat backs in front of you, there are respond cards. I would encourage every person to reach forward and grab a respond card. On those respond cards, respond cards are a really practical way to step toward intimacy and to move away from isolation. There's all kinds of opportunities for you to connect and to go deeper and enjoy God more fully. More fully, that's a good phrase. So I would encourage you, as we close down the service and our band comes to lead us in music, we respond together here at 1122. Use the respond cards. Maybe you're one of the ones that needs to take a step toward membership. Do it today. Maybe you want to lead a disciple group. Do it today. Maybe you want to serve on a serve staff team. Maybe God is stirring you. Whatever he's asking you to do, step toward intimacy. Don't be pulled toward isolation. Just imagine if every person here attentively listened To God's stirring in their spirit. Imagine if every person here. Stepped toward intimacy today. Imagine what God would do. Imagine if 500 people. Said I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my rebellion. I'm going to lay down my appetites. For selfish promotion. And I'm going to pursue this family. And this mission. Through membership. Imagine if 100 people started disciple groups. Or joined serve staff teams. And then imagine if one of those was you. Imagine if the trajectory of your life changed forever today. Because you chose intimacy instead of isolation. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us the gift of responding to you. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing and To be a part of your people. And I pray that you would stir us. That you would stir us to action. That you would teach us to trust more fully and more deeply in the gospel. And that as we love more deeply, you lead us to a place to where we serve. And we relate. And we have relationships and we experience them on the fullest of levels. Above all things, we thank you for Jesus. That because of him, we are forgiven and we can live. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing through this movement. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here at 1122, we respond to the gospel. You may need to come to the altar and pray. We would invite you to do so. You have those respond cards in the seat back in front of you. I pray that you would take a step. The last song we call our respond song. And it is the time for us to respond to what God's doing. Let's respond together.